welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble today. Uh, Mike Ellis is going to be so mad at me because I'm talking to an activist. Uh-oh, uh, he's he's going to be pissed. Apparently, according to the minister of uh, hiring the Western Standards creative writing team, uh, you're not supposed to talk to activists anymore. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're very excited to welcome back to the show somebody who's been on the show uh, more than more than a few times. He is the one of the founders of each and every. He writes a lot. I don't know how he finds the time to do it. There's the 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 blog. I'm going to cautiously call it and be open to correction in just a minute. Uh, Drug data decoded, um, which takes a look at actual scientific evidence, not just ideological uh, rantings from certain ministers. And to make sense of what would be appropriate drug policy, what would be appropriate reactions to the opioid crisis and all of the other things. And I'm told he can hold down a 4-4 time pretty good, too. Very excited to welcome back to the show, Ewan Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us again, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good, good to be back here with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. Because, like, here's the thing. the With the, the drug data decoded, I read that pretty religiously because it's you're you're not just using like oh this guy over there told me this story and i'm going to misconstrue it to try to justify provincial policy you're actually taking a look <laughs> at real scientific evidence and and data um so before we get into the 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 oh so light topics that we're going to be discussing today can you talk a little bit about drug data decoded and what it is where people can go to 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 read it because if if people take nothing else and there's going to be a lot of takeaways from this conversation i suspect but if people take nothing else out of this conversation i'd love for them to know one a place where they can go to get that sort of unbiased evidence-based information yeah yeah not not taking a page out of the rick bell playbook so much for this um Definitely trying to get inside the evidence, but also get people's stories out. So, you know, we, we publish letters that, that come from groups of people who, for example, are uh, accessing safe supply or being cut off of safe supply or using supervised consumption sites and all that sort of stuff. So so real uh, real stories from real people that that is woven into, uh, you know, new new studies, new scientific literature, uh, policy responses all the sorts of things that are going wrong in not just Alberta, but, but Canadian drug policy and, and really like international dr drug policy sometimes um, just trying to respond to all of these in a way uh, that people can uh, like understand the reasons behind them and, and why there are profit seeking uh, responses rather than public health responses to, to some of um, some of these crisis crises that we're experiencing. Uh, there's there's an awful lot of profiteering going on, and and so trying to identify uh, wh where that's happening and why and and who's benefiting uh, when we're all spinning our wheels just trying to survive uh, the crisis right now. Yeah, people go to I want to make sure I get this right. DrugDataDecoded.ca for that, and they should probably follow you on the Twitter machine too. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. So that out of the way because i wanted to front load that because i find that if you do like the plugs at the end of the episode that's usually where everybody's like oh the meat of the conversation's over i'm gonna go make a taquito or something uh and then it doesn't doesn't really hit as hard as you wanted to so i thought we'd, we'd front load it today wow there's so much to talk about though in drug policy uh let's let's start i mean first of all i'm gonna get the date right today is january 22nd um, we're hopefully getting this episode up in a day or two, because as you and I were talking in sort of the pre-interview, the things are moving so quick in this province, it's very easy for things to get out of date. But let's talk about the Red Deer Supervised Consumption Site, or SCS. What's going on there, man? Yeah, so the province has really sharpened Red Deer into the, the tip of the spear, as I call it, um, of their drug policy model. Um, Red Deer is the first place where one of these recovery communities, therapeutic communities, as the province likes to call them, um, has been set up. It's it's effectively just a larger rehab facility than we're used to. Um, and Red Deer got the first one. So 75 bed facility uh, where people can access publicly funded but privately profitable uh, drug rehab services. 
um, that are abstinence-based, abstinence-oriented. Um, and, you know, this all is sort of fitting within the, the broader model in Alberta that's been constructed of, of this private rehab, kind of corporatized rehab service um, where public services serve to funnel people into these uh, into these programs, these um, privately owned, privately run pr programs, um, and then, you know, hopefully achieve abstinence and, and stay that way indefinitely. In, unfortunately, the reality is that that's, that's almost never true. Um, it, 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 it works for some folks, uh, particularly folks that have, you know, the, the resources and the networks to, to maintain abstinence after they get out of rehab. Um, but it, it takes many, many attempts. Um, and, and one could almost say like, if it takes seven or 11 or 14 attempts uh, at something to, to achieve abstinence, are you better off just flipping a coin? Like, you know, are you better off just spending that time staying alive in, in other ways? Um, because right now, uh, you know, we, we all know about the toxic drug supply. Um, it's all totally unregulated and people are using it, uh, but we're not doing a whole lot to support those folks who, who are using that supply. So yeah, in Red Deer in particular, uh, what we're seeing is, is really a, a a transition to this Alberta model of abstinence-oriented services. They've uh, voted as a city council to adopt the Alberta model effectively, and that really formed the basis for what city council is dealing with today, which is a uh, a motion, notice of motion that was put forth by by Councillor Hyam, uh, which will seek to close down their only overdose prevention site in the city. So a city of 100,000 people, it has one overdose prevention site, which is not bad for Alberta, but um, but they're looking to close it down. And this has been a process that's been manufactured by uh, various city councillors in, in, in Red Deer alongside UCP MLAs uh, for several years now. Now, it's important. I just want to highlight the the sort of the values of supervised consumption sites and what they bring to the table, because they, there's a lot. And we've addressed this many times on the show before, but the myths keep perpetuating. So the responses have to as well. Uh, there's a lot of myths that exist around supervised consumption sites and how they cause needle debris and how they uh, encourage people to to use the drugs. Um what what are your sort of i'm going to ask you for your your thoughts on that yeah this is always the the story that's concocted by people who are trying to oppose these sites um the reality is and and this is where all of the evidence points is that supervised consumption sites or overdose prevention sites which tend to be sort of smaller or provincially governed rather than nationally governed same idea though um are uh are driving or enabling drug use in some way. Uh, and that's a false narrative. People are are using drugs, yes, um, but the important thing is that they're able to use safely in the same way that we control the alcohol supply to make sure that uh, a glass of beer does uh, not accidentally be consumed as a, as a glass of moonshine um, or, or a glass of methanol that turns you blind or something like that. Um, the same same principles should apply to all drugs effectively is is the thinking behind this. And if we can um, not regulate the drug supply, then the next best thing is to help people uh, at least be able to not use alone, which is the single greatest risk factor for dying. Uh, if you do overdose or have, an, have a drug poisoning, take something you didn't know you were taking, um, and, and, and you pass out um, and, and your breathing stops, then you need somebody there to get you out of that situation. And that's exactly what an overdose prevention site does. Um, the other services that they happen to offer though, are things like uh, syringe deposits. So you can get rid of your syringes there. You have teams that work out of these sites often to sweep the, the neighborhood around them to make sure that there aren't syringes or smoking supplies being left around, keep their neighborhood clean. Um, and, you know, there's washrooms. So people often try to conflate drug use in, in public with, um, you know, using the washroom in public, uh, like public defecation, human waste, whatever. Um, <laughs> this, this is one more thing that's solved by an overdose prevention site. You can actually provide a public washroom 
access for somebody who might not otherwise have it. So all these things that people complain about, um, the evidence actually suggests that uh, they are reduced by the presence of an overdose prevention site in their neighborhood. Um, if most of these folks who make a lot of noise about these um, would, would accept the evidence and, and kind of understand that side of it, uh, you know, as well as the human and ethical side of like, we should be helping people through this crisis right now that, that, you know, nobody seems to have good answers for, um, you know, then, then we'd probably see those folks start to argue in favor of pulling them into their neighborhoods rather than pushing them out. Yeah. I mean, the needle thing has always been fascinating to me. I remember back in, I think it was 2019 and I'm spitballing. So my date might be wrong. Um, there was a, a report specific to Alberta supervised consumption sites. I think it was actually specific to Lethbridge, but it looked at Calgary as well in, in regards to the needles. And they found that supervised consumption sites have a net negative effect on needles and drug debris in the community, which means that they were making less needles happen than if they didn't exist. So it's the it's a it's a positive. It's a net negative number of needles, but it's a net positive for people who are concerned about that thing. And yet we still see this like, oh, there's needles talking point being being thrown around. Why do you think these myths persist? They're propagated by uh, certain sort of generally more conservative politicians as as number one, but also you often hear this sort of thing from police chiefs, um, from, from police-affiliated organizations. Um, and um, I think that there's an element of, of the abstinence-based recovery industry that works on that front as well. Uh, and people that maybe for good reason feel threatened by drug use in their vicinity at all. Um, if you were working really hard to maintain abstinence in your life uh, and you felt that seeing drug use was a trigger for you, um, then then you may work very hard. You may find yourself working very hard to to make sure that you never came across drug use. And I think there are folks in that situation and, and I certainly have sympathy for that. Uh, unfortunately, that... Um, that need, that personal need for people should not trump the survival rights, the Charter 7 rights for life, liberty, and security that people uh, who use drugs um, right now should, should also have. And, and those rights should be respected for people. So um, I think that there's you know a bit of a tug of war there. But at the end of the day right now, we're in a crisis where people are dying on the streets in public in Calgary. We're talking about hundreds of people dying in public every year. Um, in a city like Red Deer, it's it's more like dozens, but uh, you know these sorts of deaths have massive ripple effects in their communities, um, and, and and the trauma of you know a kid walking to school and finding a dead body, or somebody on their way to work and finding a dead body, something like that, that sticks with them and it sticks with their family forever. So uh, these sorts of preventable deaths. Uh, just shouldn't happen ever, ever, and and we we can avoid them um, with with things like supervised consumption sites. So um, the other benefits, uh, and New York City has recently put in two overdose prevention sites uh, in the city, as well as all these needle exchanges. Um, th they just did a huge study on crime within New York City and found zero impact on crime uh, as well. So social disorder, crime, all these sorts of myths that that are propagated as well alongside the needle myth. Um, are also false and and have been studied in every city where these sorts of things uh, services have been set up essentially. They're also huge money savers for public health services. Uh, and this was studied in Calgary by Jennifer Jackson and her team, a researcher nurse at U Calgary. And they found that the uh, supervised consumption site <laughs> was more than um, revenue neutral. It, it, it effectively saved the healthcare system a whole bunch of money every year, about a million bucks. Well, that's not nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the other piece that's that I want to get into before we we sort of move on to the the Edmonton situation is I I feel like it can't be said enough that when we're talking about the 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 treatment modalities that should be available to people, oversimplifying those treatment modalities sort of ignores the complexities of what potentially can drive some people to to use drugs. And of course, there's people who use drugs recreationally. And, you know, I, I have no opinions on that one way or the other. But there's a lot of people, especially when we're talking about the opioid crisis, who are using uh, or trying to 
access and use opioids because they're trying to self-medicate something. I mean, there's people out there who have, uh, you know, chronic injuries. They suffer from chronic pain. Um, there's, there's no shortage of stories out there about people who worked building Alberta's oil and gas infrastructure who received, you know, back injuries and stuff like that. They were put on oxy, uh, by their physician. And then everybody went, well, we shouldn't do that anymore. And that doesn't change the fact that these people are still experiencing pain and there's only certain things that work and an abstinence based model doesn't address those underlying conditions. It just exposes them and leaves them, you know, it's like a raw nerve out there. Am I getting that wrong? Yeah, I, I think, um, sorry, actually, Nate, can you just kind of rephrase that? I, I wasn't sure exactly where to go with it. Uh, well, I think the, the question that I, that I sort of have is, it, it, boil it all down. If, if we're talking about something as complex as all of the different reasons why people use drugs. Yeah, yeah going to and the only solution is you have to stop absolutely doesn't reflect all like to me it's like if if and i, I want to be clear i'm not trying to um stigmatize uh, people who use drugs because as your mm -hmm. t-shirt says nice people use drugs um uh, but the if if we were to approach all different kinds of cancers let's say with one treatment option there'd be a lot more dead people. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, <laughs> and, and and glad you could bring the medical perspective to that. Thank you. Um, yeah, people use drugs for all kinds of reasons. And I would argue everybody pretty much uses drugs of some form or another. Uh, the reason alcohol is, you know, relatively safe to drink, uh, you know, on, on occasion and in moderation, um, is that it's regulated. There was a time where it wasn't and people were in fact dropping dead from it or going blind from it. Um, people use all types of drugs all the time. Every illegal drug that you can name has some sort of therapeutic potential for it or is prescribed in hospitals or in other clinical settings. Methamphetamine, fentanyl, all these sorts of things have real uh, therapeutic uses. And so... Um, our, our sort of artificial classification of these drugs really has a lot more to do with with racist and colonial histories in in the Western world in particular that that then spread around the rest of the world, um, you know, through enforcement of international policy. Then then it does with have to do with anything uh, inherent to those drugs themselves. So um, yeah, it's a, you know that that history is really important. It's really fascinating. It's worth looking into. Sort of history of drug policy in Canada. Punch that into your search bar, and uh, and there's there's all kinds of interesting stuff to learn there. Uh, you know, learn about how the KKK was interested in driving uh, the temperance movement and and alcohol prohibition in the United States and Canada through the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, there's a whole racist history around all this stuff, and it's it's really still very visible today when you start to learn about why people push for uh, continued drug prohibition around opiates, around amphetamines, stimulants, all these other uh, drugs that we continue to criminalize to this day. I mean, I start my day with a cup of coffee and I do that because of the caffeine. So yeah. gets you high. <laughs> I mean, if, if I don't, then yeah, I'm going to need, I'm going to need to dig some pretty deep holes. Cause when I deal with it, with, with, annoying people i'm gonna need somewhere to put them but uh the the caffeine makes a really big big difference for me and and there's lots like to your point the the question seems to be not are drugs bad because if you've ever had a cup of coffee to pick yourself up your drug user deal with it um the the question is what drugs are socially acceptable and should you be, I, I think the fundamental question is, should people be able to to access, if they are going to use drugs, should people be able to access the drugs that they're trying to access in a safe way? Um, when I go to Starbucks, I know that I'm getting some some sugar and some flavor and the caffeine. I, I don't have to worry about, oh, and antifreeze. Yeah. And, and the beautiful thing about asking that question is is that we now have a lot of data supporting that if people can access regulated versions of those drugs that they're using, whether it's fentanyl or um, hydromorphone or other opioids or or stimulants, they do show improved uh, 
clinical outcomes. So in particular with opioids, we're seeing massive increases in people's survivability rates as a result of uh, getting access to regulated safe supply of, of opioids. Um, but, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just, it's not just 91% higher survival, uh, which is the most recent study in a top British medical journal. Um, we're also seeing things like reduced involvement with the criminal justice system, reduced in, you know, reduced, uh, interactions with police. Um, and I think this comes back to before when you were asking, like, why is this happening? Why are people pushing for these policies? Um, I, I criticize police a lot around this because, you know, in my opinion, police advocating for criminalization of drugs is itself a conflict of interest. Police spend a lot of money and a lot of resources, a lot of public resources um, are moved through police services to continue the criminalization of drugs. Uh, and that leads to a great big salaries and paychecks for folks like Mark Newfeld, who makes 300,000 bucks a year, or Chief Dale McPhee in Edmonton, who makes uh, not too far off of $400,000 a year, um, north of 350 anyway, uh, to, to do what they do. And, and much of what these folks do is talk about, in public, the criminalization of people who use drugs and people who live in encampments. Um, and uh, that criminalization of poverty in particular um, is really a cash cow for, for police services. Um, it's very important that they maintain that. So whatever they can do to stigmatize people who use drugs, uh, they will do and, and create, make as, make it as scary as possible for the rest of us. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's a lot of, why I, I talk about uh, police within this context. I think it's very important to keep that in the front of your mind at all times when you're listening to a press conference uh, of, uh, you know, what does this person have to gain by what they're telling me right now? I've always found like the whole war on drugs thing fascinating when you have, when you see uh, leadership, whether it's from political organizations or for, from policing organizations, when they, when they get up there and they say, we're losing the war on drugs because to, to riff on my favorite comedian of all time, Bill Hicks, if you're going to say that you're losing the war on drugs, that implies that there's a war going on and people on drugs are winning it. <laughs> so there's that. But let's talk about Edmonton because Edmonton has been the focus of uh, surprising. I mean, Red Deer, you, you called Red Deer the pointy end of the spear. But if Red Deer's the pointy end of the spear, then Edmonton's the long stick part uh, because we've seen some major announcements that have come out of Edmonton just recently. They've made some bylaw changes that are I don't think anybody can argue that that they're not criminalizing poverty, because when you're going after somebody for panhandling and going to be issuing them a two hundred and fifty dollar fine, like something, something blood from a stone. But we also saw the recent announcement last week where the, you know, Jason Nixon said we're going to create a processing center for um, the encampments that were tearing down. And reportedly, the Edmonton Police Services are going to be the ones triaging people uh, in regards to what services they're accessing, whether they're uh, housing or whether they're addictions treatment or jail. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Like, I'm just going to open it up and you go, man. Yeah, well, thanks for calling it a, a processing center and not the navigation center, which was their uh, their jargon of choice for for this thing. But um, it, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's scary what's happening at Edmonton. It's surprising, first of all, that a city council that was elected on such a progressive platform has been so subverted by the provincial government to the point where uh, we're seeing these really overt. Uh, sort of pseudo-fascist almost um, measures being taken by the city council um, against this population uh, of people who, um, for all intents and purposes, just can't survive because they're not being allowed to survive. Um, you know, tearing down somebody's tent in minus 30 uh, after a court told you you shouldn't do that Um is just one of the most overt forms of oppression I think most of us have seen in our lifetimes in this country. Uh, and I'm glad that it's getting the attention that it is because uh, it goes to show uh, the degree to which um, city councils can can be overrun by um, 
more powerful forces operating above them, despite their best intentions. I think there are great people working in the Edmonton City Council, but just seeing it's not about what they say. It's about what they do at the end of the day. Uh, and we have to be paying closer attention to what politicians are doing and less attention to what they're saying, I think. Um, and so, you know, um, there's been a lot of great journalism in Edmonton out of the last few years, looking at things like uh, the degree of ticketing that happens in transit. Uh, for example, in Edmonton, um, unhoused people effectively are, are ticketed and everybody else gets warnings. Um, what happens when you give a ticket to somebody who can't pay it? They get a warrant for their arrest later and then they get hauled into remand. Um, and so you create this end endless cycle of criminalization and poverty that is literally inescapable um, and and then forces people into tents, uh, whether or not they were there in the first place. Um, so this is part of the, the poverty manufacturing complex that we seem to have created in this country. Uh, it's not just affordability. Uh, there, there are situations where people slip into these traps and then can't get out for very good reasons that are state policy enacted. Um, so I think that... Um, the, the other side of this that we need to be discussing, I think, within this conversation especially, is is drug poisoning. Um, Edmonton right now, if, you, if you're unhoused, you're at a 500 times higher risk of dying of drug poisoning than if you're housed. In Calgary, that number is more like 1,000. Um, and th there, again, good reason for this, because uh, encampment sweeps, encampment evictions drive the risk of drug poisoning sky high versus whether you're if, versus if you're allowed to stay put in your tent. Um, and, uh, the other piece of this is that police, uh, confiscation of drugs also drives drug poisoning risk much, much higher for, for weeks. Um, that's measurable after the fact, uh, after a drug bust happens. So, um, yeah, I think these, these very obvious, uh, policies around criminalization in particular as enforced through the police, um, are, are to blame in part for, for these high death rates, um, but also for the ways that um, these cycles keep playing out in our streets day after day and, and week after week. I mean, there's a part of me that looks at this whole thing and, and, you know, there, I, I am trying to figure out what I'm missing because we had the, the, the minister of, I, I can't remember what it is exactly. I think it's temper tantrums and bizarre rants. Uh, Mike Ellis, uh, he did, he did a whole thing at the press conference at the launch for this processing center where he was like, you know, we can't have people being charged to use water fountains by these gangs. And we can't have people being charged to go underneath overpasses by these gangs. We have to address this. So we're going to go after the victims of these crimes as opposed to going after the people who are perpetrating it that seems to me like the most backwards interpretation and it's worth remembering mike ellis is a former police officer uh that seems to be like the most backwards interpretation of what policing and what public safety is supposed to be because if you know you if you can imagine if there's some idiot who sets off a, a pepper spray at the stampede and the police response was like, all right, everybody except for that guy out. We're getting everybody. Everybody is we're, we're getting ready. People would lose their minds. But because this philosophy is being utilized on um, the the poor, uh, the poverty stricken, the people who are dealing with all of these issues, somehow it's like, no, no, it's cool. We'll just leave the bad guys under the bridge and we'll just process all of the victims like am, am i do you think i'm interpreting that entirely wrong or is it does it seem completely bass backwards at, at the end of the day if they're not talking about housing and safe supply and providing safe pl places for people to exist then then none of these conversations mean anything uh they're just exactly what you said finding new ways to to criminalize people to warehouse them uh, and to get them out of the public line of sight. I, I personally think that there's uh, an even more sinister uh, motive behind this. I think that development interests in Alberta, particularly around the ICE district, um, where a lot of these encampments are set up, where the Boyle Street Community Services um, drop-in was closed down earlier this year um, to make way for development, uh, I'll add. 
um, is the main driver for the immediate, that sort of urgency that we're seeing in Edmonton right now. I think that there's a, there's a command and control um, motive that that's at play of, of really controlling that land in the area around Boyle Street Community Services to make way for friendly um, gentrification uh, for um, for the, for that development that I, that I think is planned for for by folks uh, that were involved with the ice district by by the folks who own the Edmonton Oilers. Um, so you know, uh, like the, at the end of the day, like every one of these stories, there's always a financial motive involved. So it's just about uh, digging deep enough to find that. Um, I hope that there's journalists working on that. Um, because uh, I'm sure that it runs deep in, in every city. Uh, this is one of those examples where there's something just so over the top, violent and oppressive going on in our streets that's just right happening in plain sight. Like it couldn't be more obvious uh, that that's something really sinister is afoot with this. Otherwise, like what kind of city worker could clear an encampment in minus 30? Like what kind of person could do that except under strict orders? And where are those strict orders coming from? Um, so I think we need to be asking that question over and over again of like, why this cruelty? Um, who who could who could put that order through to, to d demand that workers, um, you know, exert that sort of force on, on people who really can't fight back? Well, I can't imagine that there's a lot of, of city employees in any city who are like, oh, it's minus 30 and I get to put on a Tyvek suit and ruin people's lives. Sweet. Uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of people who, who, who do that. So I think you raise a really, really important, important point there. I got to say, though, if you want to talk about a city that elected a slate of progressive councillors and have been shocked at how they've been subverted by the provincial government, I don't know if you caught our... our uh, our, our stadium announcement like four days or whatever it was before the election dropped. Like we're, we're getting jackets made in Calgary. Yeah. <laughs> in Edmonton, in Edmonton, like the city council showed up, you know, um, and they have, I think done what they could from, from where I'm standing, you know, I, I think that the Edmonton city council both had the best interests in mind uh, of their population and, and tried uh, to fight back when, um, when the shoe dropped, but, uh, they lost that battle very quickly, I think. And in Calgary, I just don't think they ever really showed up. Like there was, there was a lot of talk, uh, during the election period around harm reduction. And, um, and I just haven't seen any of that bear out. Like the, the biggest thing that the Calgary city council has accomplished on, you know, um, on policing really has been uh, to, to continue expanding uh, the interactions of police with nonprofit uh, organizations to do sort of like quote unquote non-police crisis response, but, but it's very much police crisis response. Um, you know, in other parts of North America, they're eliminating police from these roles completely because somebody with a gun in their hand should not be responding to a mental health crisis ever. And um in Calgary, we've kind of just hijacked that model and turned it into yet another way to maintain police in these situations. Um, so I, I think that um, we're the the colors are really being shown. I think in in some of these city councils right now, um, and, and I'm not seeing any fight left in them, unfortunately, uh, which is really uh, disheartening. I think after so much public mobilization in support of of um alternative measures housing uh non-police crisis response harm reduction services all these things like it's obvious the public does want to see these things in these cities um at least to the point where it would be easy to get through in some neighborhoods in some places um it's just not happening and and i think that that's because there's probably some hidden horse trading going on behind the scenes between the province and the cities. And, and the reason that Edmonton folded so quickly was because the, the province really doesn't care about the voters in, in Edmonton. They'll stomp all over that city uh, in order to get their way. And, and the councillors seem to know that. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, the Watching this, I mean, we're, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but watching the the city council in, in Calgary, who is supposed to be the most progressive city council ever, and then they just basically ruled over and said, pat my belly. Uh, it's been it's been pretty nuts. Um, but I want to talk 
I want to I want to pivot here a bit because we could get mired in everything's awful. Um, but there's some some really important positives that I think that we should talk about as well. And that's in regards to, you know, we have politicians who are saying, uh, you know, we got to do this abstinence based only treatment and this is going to be the Alberta model and we got to profitize. That's that's we're going to trademark that little word for for the show here, the 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 healthcare system and the the treatment system and all of that. Um, what the evidence, if, if only we had elected officials willing to acknowledge it or listen to it, the evidence is pointing a pretty clear path. So what are the, the big things that you've seen with your, with, you know, drug data decoded, uh, what are the biggest things that you wish more people knew about, the opioid crisis, about treatment modalities, about about all of free reign, man, you go. Okay. Well, let's start Let's start with um, a, a little case study of Calgary, where the drop-in center, the biggest shelter in the city, uh, in the summer of 2022, had the opportunity to open an overdose prevention site inside the shelter. They were seeing skyrocketing drug poisonings around the shelter. Their workers were being run ragged, responding to overdoses. The whole building was effectively an overdose prevention site, except it was just pure chaos instead of it being sort of orderly and calm like a normal overdose prevention site actually works. Um, and, and a lot of people were dying, in fact. And uh, they did not manage to get the provincial or municipal support uh, mobilized behind them to get that overdose prevention site through, not surprisingly. Uh, and then six months later, the uh, the UCP came out and did a big announcement with, you know, with Calgary's mayor and with the drop-in center's executive director uh, saying that they were going to open a detox instead of the overdose prevention site effectively. So that got funded at 4 million bucks a year. So great. Like, what what does that mean? What what does a detox inside a shelter mean? Well, I think um, fortunately there's a lot of evidence now piling up showing that that detox and, and effectively abstinence based services with regard to opioid management are completely ineffective and sometimes harmful. Uh, so what we need to be focused on with these situations is meds, not beds. You'll hear that said among public health experts: medications, not beds. Um, and and so like the the first frontline thing should always be outpatient services. So just people showing up, you know, with a, a, an opportunity to get a prescription for some medication that's going to work for them. And the lowest barrier thing should be the drug that they're using already. And that's what the whole idea behind safe supply. The evidence for safe supply is absolutely snowballing right now. Uh, the, the, to the point where I would almost say the debate is over, like, the the da the data is so strong in favor of safe supply now in terms of uh, just improving people's quality of life, uh, improving their ability to survive, reducing their contact with police, all these things that we talked about. Um, that uh, policymakers should just be saying it out loud, but I'm not hearing it. I'm not hearing it from really any politicians in Western Canada right now, unfortunately. Um, there's also another story that's sort of the corollary to this, which is that um, we now are, are fairly certain that it was deprescribing that led to the fentanyl crisis that, that as we know it right now. Uh, deprescribing ramped up in Canada significantly in 2015, uh, and a research group mapped the moment where fentanyl really took over the heroin supply to that same time point. Uh, and if you look at different provinces, that's pretty consistent. That's also been shown in the United States with different research. Um, so, you know, deprescribing of opioids um, was done, I think, in as a knee-jerk response to this sort of narrative around the Sacklers drove the opioid crisis. This is all about overprescribing. Um, unfortunately, what we did was remove the the one lifeline that people had to uh, to keep themselves off the unregulated supply, which became the unregulated fentanyl supply, uh, which is why everybody's dying in such high numbers right now. Uh, and then I just wanted to touch down on policing. Like there's some really good data around policing that's now emerging. Um, the Toronto Star just last week reported that uh, there's no relationship whatsoever in this country between um, police budgets and crime rates. So uh, adding more police budget does not decrease crime rates. Um, 
And, uh, and then there's those two studies that I mentioned earlier uh, that show that police busts, especially of opioids, uh, can drive higher deaths for the, for the weeks following that bust. Um, and that police uh, enforcement around encampments, so encampment evictions, uh, also drive drug poisonings higher. So we can look at all these things, like all the science around this, and, and start to formulate policy around like, okay, well, we shouldn't be doing encampment sweeps. We shouldn't be doing at least small scale drug busts at all. Um, but, uh, you know, it really points the way towards a regulated drug supply that we need to start talking about, um, at, at least at the basis of um, much, much higher rates of prescribing for people who are currently using the illegal unregulated supply. There is a way out. Yeah, sorry, I'll just wrap that up. Like, there is a way out of this crisis, and it's right in front of us, and the science is pointing the way. Um, so anybody fighting against that at this point and saying, trying to def de deflect attention uh, over to, you know, this, you know, this big risk factor of like, oh, what about the kids and, and these other moral panics that come up? Um, it is probably doing it on the basis of some sort of financial interest um, that I think is also quite easy to find it when you when you start digging. I always kind of go back to and I'll be the first to admit when when the federal government started saying, ah, maybe we'll decriminalize, maybe we'll legalize, commercialize, profitize, if you will, the the marijuana. Um, I was one of the first people that was like, uh, I don't know about that, because in in my sandbox, you know, I, I, I encounter a lot of uh, drunk drivers and. Yeah. Um, and my concern was like, is this going to turn into more of that? Like if somebody, I'm not concerned about fights because I don't know that anybody smokes weed and then, or, or uses marijuana through whatever means, and then looks for a fight because you'll forget why you were angry in 30 seconds. So like, I don't, I don't know that that happens, but the, the, the piece to me is so we legalized marijuana. You can now go just about anywhere. I mean, find a strip mall. There's probably three pot shops in there. Um, and you can buy your weed. And cats and dogs aren't living together. There's no mass hysteria. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's, it's been a nothing burger. Uh, and I still see drunk drivers. I don't see a whole lot of drivers who are high. So do with that what you will. But the at the end of the day, that to me is not only a a functional case for hey safe supply can work because before that there were people who were like ah there's going to be marijuana everywhere and people are going to have be having the marijuana psychosis they'll eat babies it was th there was a lot of hysteria around it and it turned into oh this works yeah and so why who, can't who, the other things do you remember at the time who was making the most noise about cannabis legalization um, I do not. Well, there are a lot of p press conferences centering police chiefs. I can tell you that much. And if you go okay. back and look at the news stories, uh, up until about 2015, uh, you know, we legalized in 2018. So through those, that, that, that year where those years, those three or four years where it was really becoming a possibility after, after the uh, liberals got elected federally, um, there, there was a lot of moral panic being driven by police chiefs across this country. And, and there's good reason for that. Cannabis was the number one drug that was busted up until 2018 uh, in this country. And, and again, like when you're just looking at police budgets and all stuff, police actually did quite well out of that because they did create a moral panic around, uh, you know, high drivers. Um, and they got a lot of funding under the NDP government in Alberta, for example, uh, they got bumps in funding to, to deal with, with that. And it, I don't know that it really bared it, like bore out the way that that it was described, like you're you're saying, um, but uh, it was a way that 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 sort of jujitsu happens with with um, policing and, and the way that they can manufacture these panics that uh, that can, lo and behold, always arrive at the same place of increasing their funding, <laughs> increasing their funding, and uh, uh, without necessarily solving a problem that is real or that exists. I just like I haven't seen any news stories about, oh, this house down the street had to be condemned because of a grow up. I, I haven't seen those. I, yeah. I feel like it maybe doesn't happen nearly as much, if at all, anymore.
Yeah. There's also a, really like just a couple of days ago, there was another study published that t t looked at the states and, and the effect of legalization of cannabis in different states. There's something like it looked at 24 states that legalize versus all the rest of them. Uh, and it showed, and this is a really interesting point in the crossover of drug policy, you know, cannabis and opioid policy, is that um, legalizing cannabis was associated with a huge reduction in fentanyl deaths, fentanyl-linked deaths, uh, so unregulated opioids. Uh, and it was something like 10 people per 100,000, which is massive. Because right now in Alberta, it's about 45 people or so per 100,000 that are dying every year. Uh, so if you took 10 off of that tomorrow, you know, if this was the state of, you know, I don't know if Arkansas doesn't have legalization or whatever, and they're sitting at 45, if you could reduce it overnight, basically to, to, to 35, that's a lot of saved lives. Uh, and so the, these sorts of things matter and uh, they matter not just for the surviving, the people who, you know, and their families who are otherwise being harmed, um, but they, they matter for the folks like the police. And, and I'll keep coming back to that, but like the, they don't want that budget lost. So they will find a way to, to spin this. Um, it's not the police. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the beat cops that are at fault for this. Uh, it, it's the chiefs, it's the executive groups and it's, and it's the union bosses in particular that, that are driving these narratives. Well, opioids are another one, like to me, and again, speaking with no expertise whatsoever. Uh, but to me, I kind of classify opioids like from a, social disorder kind of standpoint like if somebody's using an opioid in the same vein if they're using marijuana they're going to forget what they were angry about if somebody's using an opioid they're just going to get sleepy so yeah that's there, that's a bunch of people taking naps like it, they're, they're, oversimplifying but yeah, they're going to be in less pain than they were a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and everybody's a better person when they're in less pain, in my experience. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's not a it's not a risk factor for anybody to be around somebody using opioids, really. Um, not 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 at the scale we're talking about here. Now, I got one other topic that I want to hit you with, um, because this is the big one. Uh, that we're facing in, in almost certainly the next legislative session. So what I'm talking about here is the, the compassionate intervention, which is in the same way that they called it like a, a, it's a processing center. I mean, we're basically making soiling green at this point, but um, the, the, the compassionate intervention is, is the, the carefully branded marketed research name for forced treatment. So let's talk about forced treatment. What does the, the data say? Daniel Smith seems to think that, you know, if you've got somebody and they just keep using the drugs and you can't convince them, then the only way to deal with it is to kidnap them and institutionalize them. So they learn clockwork orange way, I guess, that uh, the drugs are bad. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, this is another one where the stories of real people who have been through it are, are so much more valuable. But, you know, I, I've never been forced into addiction treatment, um, fortunately, uh, but I know lots of people who have and uh, they are harrowing stories. These are situations where there's not a whole lot of daylight between, uh, you know, social isolation um, and uh, like incarceration and, and the sort of, um, means of incarceration that are at play when you're talking about forced addiction treatment, uh, people lose trust in the people around them that forced them into that situation, whether it's their family or whether it's authorities, uh, they, they are, their, their personal sense of self is affected. Their sense of empowerment is affected. And, um, the data are very clear that that they're put at higher risk of drug poisoning or overdose when they get out of that situation um, than than they were at when they went in. So um, it, it's it's not a good scene. Um, talking about it, it, it is uh, is a signal that you know if if you see a politician like pushing this, driving this forward, uh, it probably means that um, they're feeling pressure to either do something about the situation and they don't know what else to do and they haven't bothered looking at the other options on offer um, or uh, they're being pressured politically 
by some of these other forces that we've talked about to uh, to maintain that that pipeline of people into addiction treatment for various reasons. Um, so I think that that those are important to examine when you hear this sort of public advocacy by politicians. Uh, there is absolutely no justification at this point for the Compassionate Intervention Act, as Alberta government has put it forth. Um, there are situations uh, where it it could be justified to detain somebody uh, who is you know temporarily uh, a danger to themselves or others, um, but. Uh, on 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 the whole, the the idea of uh, of coerced addiction treatment is uh, one of the worst ones out there as far as managing um, drug poisonings right now. I mean, yeah, like for sure, if somebody's in the the midst of like a meth induced psychosis, let's say, uh, or a sympathiomimetic induced psychosis, because um, who knows what's in it, uh, you know, if they're if they're running around trying to chop people's arms off. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's probably something that we should go, oh, don't do that. But the, there's a big difference between saying, we're going to stop you from chopping off people's arms and saying, and now you're coming with us. Uh, there's that's there's a big disconnect there. But I mean, one of the other things about the forced treatment, one of the, the most compelling arguments that I've ever heard about the forced treatment piece came from actually Guy Felicella. Uh, and I really, that dude's so amazing. Uh, the the interview that we did with him, I think Daniel Smith should be made to watch it Clockwork Orange style personally. But uh, he he raised the argument that um, if he had gone into, if he had been forced into treatment, he would have ruined it for everybody else there. He would have deliberately gone out of his way to be the biggest shit disturber that he could have possibly been because he wasn't ready to be there and he didn't want to be there. And it's yeah, that yeah. that that old joke of how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb's got to want to change. You can't force someone into accepting treatment. And this is where I'm going to pivot to this, this uh, article from the International Journal of Drug Policy. Um. So let's because there is evidence available there. There are places that do use forced treatment. And, you know, I think maybe somebody should ask the question of of, of Premier Smith and, and Marshall Smith. Um, hey, so the Alberta model sounds great. Do we really want to be copying Iran, though? So talk <laughs> about the paper. What is what is this 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 paper say? Yeah, uh, Iran as a country has a fascinating history that I'd actually encourage people that are interested in, in this whole discussion that we've had to, to go and dig into. I wish I knew more about it because um, there was a period in Iran's not too distant history where they had quite progressive drug policy through and through, and, and they looked after people and they provided safe supply and, and so on. Uh, through the political turmoil that kind of resulted in the current um, regime that's been in place for decades, uh, they switched over completely and effectively went backwards uh, to uh, to an internment type uh, sort of regime where where people are detained um, and, and forced into abstinence and and all the things that come along with that. And uh, what this what this recent paper showed uh, from an Iranian group based out of the university of Toronto, I think the lead author, but, um, an Iranian man who, uh, worked with a, a team, some, some of whom were based in Iran, um, it basically showed that, uh, it was like a, a 4% success rate, I think was the number they came out with, uh, which is not a success rate at all. That would never pass any muster in any medical context for any kind of treatment. Um, and, uh, and that was that that was what they came out with, you know, over um, all these years of studying forced addiction treatment in Iran. So it's uh, it's not promising. And that and that matched very well with other data from around the world. Like that, this is not a practice we should be putting into play, um, not for not for anybody, not for people who are wielding a knife, uh, you know, maybe on meth. Although I will come back to that and say, like, all the people that I've been around on meth, I've never felt unsafe personally. I've never been in a situation where even somebody who was in visible psychosis, like felt like a threat to me personally. Um, I think that there are better ways and worse ways to manage folks who are in psychosis. Uh, but brandishing a gun at them is probably the last thing you should do. 
Yeah. And to be clear, it, it, you know, when we, t I always look at substances and this is a general statement, of course, but I always look at substances as sort of a, uh, a force multiplier of what's already there. So if somebody's already in a state of, uh, paranoia or fear or violence or, 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 or the, the substances that they take are going to amplify that. It's like, if you drink and you become a dick, it's not because of the alcohol. It's because you started as maybe being a little dick and it just made you a bigger dick, but it was still there. That's just how those things I, I think without any evidence whatsoever works. But I mean, to put a, put a, a bit of a finer point on this this study because I think it's important. The context is so critically important. The because I was just double checking as you were speaking there. Ninety six point four percent of the people who were involved in the forced treatment relapsed within two months. So your four percent success rate. Yeah, I mean, for context, and I just I just looked it up. The odds of a player winning in a game of blackjack is 42%. So you have better odds by like a factor of 10 of winning a game of blackjack than you do coming out of a forced treatment regimen and not relapsing. Yeah. And I think like even broadening that point a little bit more of like, what good is it doing that person if they can maintain abstinence, even for two months, even if they get through that, that four, that one in 25 people that's forced into treatment gets through and maintains abstinence. Two months later, they relapse and use again in this drug cl climate with the way that the volatility of the drug supply, uh, the unpredictability of what you're taking, you are at a way higher uh, risk of death in that situation. Um, it, it may only take once at that point. And so uh, like, just compare that with the other approach, which is effectively like, let's just let them have the drugs that they're taking and figure it out on their own, you know, or with whatever support that they want to access for the next few years. Maybe it takes a few years for them to get to the point where they're like, I, I'm kind of done with this. That often happens. People get into their thirties. Maybe they want to have kids. Maybe they've got a steady partner that is helping them stabilize. Maybe they've got a job they really care about and, and the drugs are getting in the way of that. Like there's so many things that happen in our lifetimes that can help people actually achieve stability. But the least stable thing is um, using drugs, you know, in, on a regular basis and not knowing what you're taking. Um, you know, you want to talk about psychosis and that sort of thing. Um, you know, staying up all night because you took a drug by accident and, and, you know, not sleeping for three days or something that's going to give you psychosis. Um, so there's lots of, um, lots of nuance to this that I think gets lost in, even sometimes when we're just looking at a study, uh, there's just, that's why people's stories are so important. I'm so glad you brought up Guy Felicella. Cause it's just like, yeah, it would have been a shit it's disturber. <laughs> that dude is so like, there's, <laughs> There's 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 certain interviews in, in in the six years of doing this where it's just been like, I'm just going to sit back and shut up and just like, you got this, man. And Guy's story and the way that he conveys it is so uh, intense. And he's, yeah, like, I was like, okay. <laughs> I want to bring it back, though, because uh, there's, there's two things that I want to touch on and then I'll let you go real quick. Uh, you know, you talk about the the if if you support people if you make people feel safe you know what through something like safe supply then that keeps them alive to access the services and this is where the the supervised consumption site piece has always been such a powerful argument because their diversion rates or the rates with which they're able to get people to access things that help them make the progress when they're ready to make the progress uh, are huge. And in fact, to Guy's story, you know, it was the outreach group from one of the supervised consumption sites in Eat Hastings that was able to get him plugged into the things that have eventually led him to be able to be sober for the length of time. And for him, abstinence only works. Cool. That's for him. And he's the first to say, that's for me, but it's complex and it's different. Uh, everybody's going to have a different looking solution because what brought them to it is a different looking scenario. But this is where that, you know, if, if, if we're able to keep people alive, if we're able to keep people safe and we're able to make people feel safe, that's where they're going to be able to access the services in a productive, productive way. So I just didn't want to let that go by. Mm -hmm. um, 
My last question for you, though, is I'm sure that there's going to be the this the, I don't know the the seven or eight people who listen to this episode, uh, they will uh, they'll and they'll go ah, oh, but what do I do? And to me, it seems like the the best answer to that question is on one hand we have an overwhelming amount of evidence that says here's the things that work here's the things that don't work do the things that work don't do the things that work so the the pathway seems to be pretty clear the problem is on the other hand we've got politicians vested interests that go yeah but i really like money because they figured out that they can buy stuff with money and if you want to make a difference in this conversation, then you not only have to amplify that evidence, but you also share drug data decoded, uh, but you also have to support people who are not just going to say, yeah, I, I'm super progressive too. They're actually going to go to the mat for these issues and say, you know what? Forced treatment doesn't work. And as long as I have a, say in this argument i will not only actively not support it i'll actively condemn it that will be my role as your elected official at pretty much all levels of government because one of the things that struck me in this conversation is you've talked about municipal you've talked about provincial and you've talked about federal so there's opportunities to influence this thing at all levels of government it, it, is that what people should be doing yeah I, I i lose hope sometimes when i think about the um, ineffectiveness of public advocacy when you're talking about government, I, it's so uh, it's so disheartening to to go to like a municipal council meeting. For example, what happened around Edmonton's decriminalization? Like there was like meeting after meeting after meeting with groups and closed doors and and public open forums and all this stuff going on. And I'll like they took two years effectively to get a decriminalization packaged together to the point where they were just like, oh, uh, yeah, we're just not going to do this. We're not going to send this to the feds. And it's like, no, we everybody knows this is the right thing to do now. Like, there's no reason not to send this forward. And so, um, like, sometimes I, I do lose hope around that. Um, it's not it's not right. It's always better to do something than to do nothing uh, with governments. They are very sensitive sometimes to flack, uh, especially this government. They really don't like the hot stove. Um, you know, we saw that with with the coal mining. Um, we've we've seen that in a few situations where they back down after big public backlash. Uh, so I think that um, it, it is good to to do that advocacy. And and you know, if you've got levers to pull with with people for whatever reason, if you've got some kind of sway with politicians, uh, then use it absolutely. Because uh, the more of them that are talking the right language that are saying the right things in public, um, the more others might take that on within their circles and, and start amplifying it, but they're ultimately not going to do anything without really obvious public support. So I always speak to the public when I'm doing advocacy. I don't, I'm not talking to politicians. Uh, it's not, it's not about that. I don't see that as, as the, the main viable path forward. It's about moving the needle with the public uh, to get to the point where people are fed up with the way things are enough to, to act on it and to speak out and to start to create that resonance. Um, but I think even more importantly than speaking it is to go and, and build that solidarity across, you know, class boundaries uh, and racial boundaries and, and cultural boundaries uh, with folks that you, you know, aren't supposed to be interacting with in, in the society that we've built here. So, you know, if you get a chance to meet your unhoused neighbors, uh, and show them a little bit of solidarity in whatever way you can, that's a huge act of resistance and, and should not go, you know, unnoticed. Like it, it's, it's an important thing for, for everybody to be doing right now in a moment when, uh, those folks really are experiencing fascism. Like there's no other way to say it of what's happening in Edmonton right now. That's, that's pure fascism against the unhoused population. Um, and those people deserve our support. Uh, they deserve community care and, and solidarity. And the more that anybody can do to, to build those bridges and show that care and show that support and solidarity, uh, the, the more, uh, easily we'll find that public resonance later when when it's time to create better policies anything else you want to add on here man um 
I, I just want to tack on to what you said that there's nothing wrong with being kind. Like if you're being kind to people as opposed to trying to control them, you'll almost always be doing the right thing. Yeah. So I just had to say that because you were talking about the introduce yourself to your houseless neighbor and like, yeah, just just don't be a dick. It's really easy. Yeah, pe people are people at the end of the day, and, and that goes for everybody. You know, even the folks that I criticize, like I, I recognize your humanity. I I I am not here to to dehumanize anybody. Um, I, but you know, the criticism comes from a place of caring. I I, I really genuinely do think that we have huge opportunities right now to build uh, a a better foundation for our society. We have huge challenges in our lifetimes. You know, we've still got to deal with climate change. There, there are huge tsunami level things heading our way. And, and here already, like we just went through a summer where the whole province seemed like it was on fire for months on end. Like these, this is our shared existence from this point forward. How are we going to deal with those if we can't deal with simple problems like rolling out safe supply programs for people so they don't die of poisoned fentanyl supplies. Like these are simple compared to the things that we'll have to deal with in our lifetimes. And, uh, and we just have to get better at this than, than we are right now. So that, I think that's, that's where I, I would leave it. Yeah. The climate change thing. I read an article like three weeks ago, the fires are still burning in many parts of the province. Like it's January. And the fires are still so like yeah we got we, we should probably get a handle on that um yeah uh you and thompson thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and i really can't stress enough like the the drug data decoded um you, i get the little i get the emails the updates you do all the work for me so like it's not like i have to ah oh, it's tuesday i gotta go check it shows up in my inbox it's so easy and then i get to learn things uh so i i really would encourage the like i said the seven or eight people who are listening to this to to go sign up for the the drug data decoded um because it's such an important source of evidence based information as opposed to just rhetoric from people who stand to benefit from from rhetoric so you and thank you so much for for joining uh the conversation today hey are you playing any gigs anytime soon anything you want to plug on that end let's uh not anything on the schedule right now but yeah keep an eye on my twitter i'll, I'll yeah usually put out one post in advance of a show or something like that so yeah we'll uh we'll see we'll see how it goes no we're things are going good we're gonna try and record something soon so yeah really uh really fun kind of folk punk very socialist oriented um couple of guys from the mining district of england uh with with big labor backgrounds that that i'm playing with so it's been a lot of fun you know trying to understand what they're saying and uh and playing along with it well you can never go wrong with the punk rock as far as i'm concerned but you uh, <laughs> and thompson thank you so much for joining us again today thanks for having me and that's it for another episode of the breakdown as always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case maybe leave a, a review and a rating or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms we want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the breakdowns audience and as always take care of each other and keep the conversation going <laughs>